are listening to episode 3 of 1066 Wasn't All That, an independent podcast about new research in history and related fields. I'm Victoria Stiles, and today I'm joined by Daniel O'Neill, a PhD student in history at the University of Nottingham. Say hello, Dan. Hello. Can you kick us off with some background about what it is that you're researching? Broadly, my research is on cigarette advertising after World War II in Britain um, and how the smoking and health issue came to affect it. It's a project that um, my supervisor, Liz Harvey, worked out in conjunction with um, Nottingham City Museums and Galleries, who own the John Player Advertising Archive. And they got together and worked out this uh, PhD studentship using that archive to talk about cigarette advertising in Britain. My starting point is 1955, and I'm going up to about 1986 because that's broadly when the uh, what the archive covers in terms of adverts. That's quite an unusual approach then to start off with the archive that you're going to be using and then have to come up with research questions afterwards. So how have you gone about that? Well, firstly, getting to know the archive quite a bit. Uh, I spend a couple of days a week, pretty much every week there, just looking at what documents have and what they could potentially tell us. It, the archive hasn't been fully catalogued as well, so I'm going kind of cataloging as I go through it. But the museum had a fairly good idea of what was in there, so they could tell me that there's stuff on sports sponsorship, um, stuff on the coupon schemes John Player ran with uh, certain cigarette brands and some of the adverts they had. So before I really started writing anything, uh, I kind of tried to formulate a sort of simple structure, not something that I'd, I'd stick to uh, religiously, but um, it was basically using each kind of advertising form, marketing, promotion that they did, the kind of broad categories they, they had, and making a chapter around each one. And I've kind of stuck to that as we've gone along because it uh, it's, seems like the easy enough thing to do. But yeah, it was a bit of a, a different way of doing it. I think Liz helped out quite a bit um, kind of preparing it before I started, which was good. She uh, she had an idea of what the PhD could potentially cover and she you know she filled me in and then I had a look and yeah, and we kind of worked it out as there. So, although um, it's still always changing. We're always like debating which bits to put in which chapters, but that's, I guess that's like any PhD. For the benefit of people who've never been in an archive, never dealt with one, can you describe what it is you're dealing with? Yeah, uh, the John Player archive's not like a normal archive that researchers come and use. It's not like the National Archives, for instance. So it's basically a whole kind of stack of roller racking that's full of just a whole variety of objects that aren't in any I mean they're grouped together in categories but they're in no kind of kind of systematic order so we've got things like business documents um, from specific departments at John Player and Sons and these those relate to uh, my period specifically they don't have much coverage before or after so there's lots of correspondence between different managers, uh, marketing executives, uh, players, uh, talking about different sports they sponsored and uh, different promotions they were running uh, with different brands. And then we've got the actual adverts themselves and they come in a whole variety of um, different shapes and sizes. 
We've got show cards, which would be the um, sort of cardboard advertisements that you'd find on a tobacconist's counter or in a supermarket or wherever. And they, yeah, relate to different brands. And they, there's, there's a really good coverage of them. We've got some from um, the turn of the 20th century right up to 1970s, 1980s. So that's a, there's kind of real wealth of stuff there. Um, and then we've got guard books with press advertising in. And then just like quite big uh, shop signs and stuff where you'd, you know, the um, the kind of plastic metal uh, signs that you'd find on the outside of corner shops, which, you know, advertising uh, certain brands and stuff. And on top of that, we have a whole range of tobacco journals uh, and other kind of miscellaneous books and stuff that are all <laughs> useful in varying degrees shall we say there's a so it can sometimes be a bit hit and miss the archive with uh, what you'll you'll dig up but basically to answer what the archive is it's basically a donation from uh, john player and sons which they made to nottingham council in the 1980s which consists of about probably just under twenty thousand objects and they donated that at a time when they were trying to um when they were downsizing, so they were getting rid of factory, uh, like warehouse space and stuff, and the archive became available. It's a real wealth of information, but it can also be quite overwhelming as well, the, uh, the amount of stuff you have to sift through sometimes. They ran a project previously where someone had kind of sorted through the business documents for me, so they're all kind of nicely boxed. The rest of the stuff's a bit all over the place, but it's in broad groupings, which is good. So you can, I do know where to look, broadly for something if I'm looking specifically for something it might take a little while so with this material what are the wider questions that you're linking it to my broad questions are going to be I mean the main one is what strategies did the marketing strategies did the tobacco industry adopt when faced with the association between smoking and smoking related diseases like lung cancer bronchitis and coronary heart disease etc and more specifically how that worked out in britain uh with one of the leading um tobacco manufacturers john player and sons my other research questions vary from chapter to chapter but it's kind of how did the company uh, go about advertising in the press and how did that relationship change over time? Um, and then how did, what was its relationship to things like sport and leisure activities? And again, how did that change over time and why? And um, broadly speaking, what sort of strategies did they use? In the 1950s, you have a reliance on press advertising mainly. But then in 1955, you have the beginning of commercial television in Britain with the launch of uh, ITV um, so they start using that a lot as well so they're putting adverts on television right from the off like uh, from September 1955 when the, the channel was first launched in the 1950s players start to read uh, well tobacco manufacturers broadly start to realize that their kind of broad stroke advertising isn't producing amazing results there were changes in the uh, tobacco market that meant that they should target specific groups of consumers with different types of advertising. So one of the things that is happening in the 1950s and then beyond in the 1960s, possibly as a response to the health crisis, 
but also as a response to uh, changing economic conditions is that smokers are changing to tip cigarettes, uh, cigarettes with filters. And the tobacco industry spot this in the late 1950s. They use press and television to launch a whole range of new tipped brands to try and capture a, a greater share of that growing market because they realise that's the, the way that people are going. On top of that, you've also got a worry that more young people aren't starting to smoke and that they're worried that over time their smoking population is going to decrease. So they are targeting youth in um, a whole range of different kind of magazines and stuff. So they, they take out a uh, adverts in Melody Maker, for instance, and also use specific themes to target um, women and young people. So I've got a advert for a tip cigarette called Bachelor that players made um, from the 1930s. But this this advert's from 1951, and it features a young a young man pictured next to his motorcycle with this following copy, uh, which is in the form of a poem. Young Lenny, the lad you see pictured above, is crazy on cars but indifferent to love. He's fair and he's square, and he's muscle all through. His eyes make you think that he's laughing at you. If girls ever ride in his automobile, it isn't his chassis that has the appeal. For Lenny's the laddie who never forgets their packet of bachelor tip cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, so you've got these kind of appeals to rom- uh, like romance and the idea that um, they want young people to see cigarette smoking as conducive to you know good social skills and good social relations, getting a girlfriend, getting a boyfriend. And that appeals quite blatant. Uh, even in 1951, but definitely as the uh, as the decade progresses and into the 1960s, the appeal to youth and romance is more explicit and players start running with the slogan, people love players and have a whole range of television and press advertisements in which young couples are pictured sharing a smoker and sharing players' cigarettes. This strategy comes to an abrupt halt, though, in... 1962 when the Royal College of Physicians publish a report called Smoking and Health. There's a big public reaction to it. The press make a big deal of the um, links that the college publish in the report between lung cancer and smoking and uh, other diseases as well. And this is a backlash against cigarette advertising where um, the government's put under pressure to act but the tobacco industry steps in before they do to say, we'll voluntarily uh, restrict our advertising. We'll no longer show young people or scenarios in which smoking is shown to to be helpful to uh, social or business success or success in romance or anything. And we'll take a more um, responsible approach to advertising. Press advertising becomes more uh, formal, People are pictured less in it, and the people that are pictured have to be aged over 25. And that's a clause that cigarette industry introduced themselves. And players' advertising takes a turn where they focus more on the product. So the images of young couples are gone, and it's more uh, focusing on just the cigarettes. Although they still do um, try and make associations through their advertising, there's uh, ones where the packet of cigarettes are placed next to um, 
a bowl of fruit or something. And you, there is this, an idea that they're trying to perhaps subconsciously make the idea that smoking is normal on the one hand, but also not as bad for your health as is being made out in uh, the medical circles. So sort of as part of a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. So kind you, of image. You've got you, you can have your apple, but you can also smoke your packet of cigarettes, and you can still you know get by and survive until however old. I think that's one of the main things that people come up with about smoking is that the smoke, the health effects, as obviously happen over a time, and they don't happen to everyone. So everyone knows that example of someone who lives till they're ninety and smokes a packet a day. So the the cigarette industry can play on that a little bit with their advertising. Going on to where the marketing strategies went after the 60s, 1965, you have the government banning cigarette advertisements on television. And this is the kind of moment that the cigarette manufacturers step back and say, we've got to think up new strategies. So it from 1965, these players introduce a cigarette with uh, coupons in them. Um, now, coupons are an interesting development that happens in the 1930s initially, um, but then they stop pretty quickly. So by the mid-1930s, they're over, but they're reintroduced after the war. And they're basically, with every packet of cigarettes you got, you got a certain number of vouchers. Um, and with these vouchers, you could save up enough to um, exchange the vouchers for a gift from the glossy catalogs that the tobacco manufacturers producing. So if you saved up, I don't know, 10,000, you could get a rally bicycle from the players catalog. And that was something that they poured a lot of money into players specifically. And they had quite a bit of success with um, the brand that they did it with number six cigarettes becomes the biggest selling cigarette in the, on the British market throughout the late 1960s and into the 1970s. One of the things that players were trying to do with their coupon scheme is one promote brand loyalty because you could only save up for your items through smoking this one brand although they extended to uh, number 10 cigarettes later in the 1960s that was a big fear for them because without television advertising and being able to reach a large number of television viewers they felt that there was less means to cement brand loyalty and also, it would be extremely hard to launch a new cigarette without that advertising medium. So the coupons became a great way for them to launch number six with a kind of sustained attack where people would have to keep buying number six cigarettes. Another thing they were kind of doing with the coupon scheme was appealing to women generally, although a lot of men smoke number six as well. A lot of the gifts that you could send away for were uh, domestic items, so domestic consumer goods like anything from, you know, bed linen, pots and pans, kitchen appliances, right up to kind of more leisure-based uh, items, like, but also, you know, bizarre things like a rubber dinghy and stuff that you, you could never imagine anyone saving enough, smoking enough cigarettes to save enough coupons mm. for. And they did have a good, again, they did have success with that. I think... The gender difference was for number six cigarettes uh, when they did their sort of smoking surveys showed that uh, it was slightly weighted in favour of women, which is significant at a time when there were 
proportionally a lot less of women smokers compared to men. On top of the coupon schemes, after the 1965 television ban on advertising, players move into leisure-based promotions more explicitly. Before 1965, they'd done had a few ex, kind of experimental trials of um, going to Butlins and trying to sample and sell cigarettes through sponsoring, you know, amateur diving competitions there and stuff like that. Um, but after 1965, the company decides to change its advertising and marketing structure so a lot more emphasis is placed on players promotional staff going out into retailers but also holiday resorts and promoting their cigarettes at things like beauty pageants also bingo was a big thing for them and they you know they did this by putting on entertainment for holiday makers or shoppers having promotional girls there who could hand hand out free cigarettes and also, you know, tell tell people about the brands that players were launching or set trying to sell. And this carried on into the 70s, but was overtaken, I think, by uh, players' involvement in sports sponsorship. This became, for them, a more cost-effective way of getting their brand names out to a big audience um, through putting on a lot of sponsored sports. So they, uh, they were involved in uh, Sunday League cricket, which is the kind of precursor to the one-day game, rugby league, rugby union. They experimented a bit with golf. And they had a tennis tournament, which a lot of big-name stars came to, like uh, Nastase and uh, Jimmy Connors and people. But the uh, the main sport that they were associated with, it was, um, or they had the most success with on the track, is they sponsored Team Lotus, the Formula One team, who won a few world championships in the early 70s and helped cement um, a new brand players were launching, John Player Special, within the public consciousness, I think. And yeah, sports sponsorship in the 1970s become massive for John Player and Sons, but also uh, the tobacco industry generally in Britain especially if the sport's televised like Formula One. It's a way of, of getting the brands out through having the brand names and symbols all over cars, getting them out to large television audience. Also a way of um, sampling and selling cigarettes direct at the, the grounds and they were holding the sponsored events at. And this carries on in the 1970s until about 1977, 1978, when the government tries to uh, implement another voluntary agreement with the uh, tobacco industry to have less advertising at televised sporting events and less of a brand presence at the events they do sponsor. And the cigarette manufacturers agree. And although it doesn't happen, it happens in stages. It doesn't happen straight away. They do phase out sponsored sport significantly, although you can still see the legacy of um, cigarette sponsorship in something like Formula One right up until 2002 when the British government decided to ban cigarette advertising entirely and decide with the, to phase out sports sponsorship um, by 2006. With this project, what is it that you found most challenging about doing the PhD and do you have any advice for other researchers? With this project, I think the most challenging aspect was working with the archive, um, but also the most rewarding aspect because it's something that no one's really gone through in the depth that I have. But there's also um, a lot of times you'll go down to the archive and 
I'll find, you know, I'll go through pages and pages of correspondence and there'll be so much that isn't what I want. I mean, it's interesting and it shows the workings of the company, John Player and the Sons, but it doesn't help me answer my research questions. So I have to kind of trawl through it a bit. But I think the rewards from that approach are pretty great because you get um, really specific documents that can just fall into your lap, which uh, you'd never come across otherwise without going through everything. I don't plan on going through all the cigarette packets, unfortunately. Uh, that might be a step too far. Um, my advice for someone starting a PhD would be to to do a bit every day. Um, never kind of get too caught up in the, the bigger picture of, oh, this is a massive 100,000 words I have to write. How am I going to do it? I would just say take every day, set yourself some easy goals, you know, read a couple of articles, write a few hundred words if you're in if you're at that stage don't get too panicked you will get there eventually although it can sometimes feel like it's a mass it's a long way off or it's a massive task you know it isn't once you've broken it down into those little stages i think it is achievable i think people i think you can do really well with it it's a really interesting and engaging way to learn about a subject good advice I've only just got my head around the fact that I'm not really writing one massive document. I'm writing lots of shorter. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit late in the day for me to figure this out. I think my thesis is good because of the way it's easily dividable into the chapters, which each one are based on. Each one is based on a different promotional strategy. Although that's meant that the kind of reading different uh, historians for each has been a bit of a of an issue. Uh, rather than have the big trawl through all the history that's been written about tobacco at the start, which I did do to an extent, but it became apparent that each chapter is going to need its own kind of history area that I'm going to have to tap into. So the leisure promotion is obviously going to be a lot of leisure history. Um, Sports sponsorship is obviously going to be a lot of sport history. Uh, Then advertising history for the, the, the more straightforward adverts. Then something like the the coupon scheme, that's more consumerist history, more history of um, like consumer products almost and how they're kind of sold. I've, so I've, I've ended up reading a whole host of weird and wonderful topics, um, things like the history of mail ordering and then the history of, yeah, bingo and butlins. Yeah, it's it's I, I think, yeah, that was another massive challenge of the PhD, but a really interesting one again, because you get the whole whole range of stuff to read about. With such a controversial topic where all of these techniques that you've talked about from the 50s and 60s seem quite shocking, how do you keep that sort of academic distance between yourself and the techniques that you're talking about? How do you stay neutral when describing what they're doing? A good question, and one me and my supervisor have often uh, wrestled with. One of the things I try to keep in mind when I'm thinking ethically about what the cigarette companies were doing during the post-war period is that the health understanding of smoking was not as developed as it is today. So the main association that doctors were publicizing between smoking and lung cancer and other smoking-related disease was a statistical one. They had yet to find the carcinogens or the toxins in nicotine and tar to prove that cigarette smoking was causing the diseases. They were just looking at how smoking rates had gone up and then lung cancer rates had gone up a few years later. 
I think it kind of lets me be a bit more neutral. I don't have to say the cigarette industry industry was bad. Law, you know, you know, I can let the, the kind of things they were doing speak for themselves in a way. Dan, thank you very much for sharing your work with us, and I look forward to reading the finished thesis. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like more information about the topics covered on this podcast, or if you'd like to talk about your own research or suggest a guest for us, then visit 1066podcast.blogspot.co.uk. Thank you for listening.